as we close out our Advent uh, season, I think it'd help, be helpful for us to you know, look back on where we've been these last few weeks. Uh, you know, our series, I believe, was perfectly titled The Dawn of Redeeming Grace. So we've looked at that throughout these last few weeks. We started in the book of Numbers with the prophecy from the magician Balaam. So a star will come from Jacob. A scepter will rise from Israel. And interestingly, we started Advent with the magician's prophecy of the coming Messiah, and we're going to conclude today with some magicians coming to worship that very Messiah. And so the second week, we look closely at a passage in Isaiah 9 that promises a Savior. It says, a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us. The government will be on his shoulders, and he will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Now, then we moved into the book of Luke, where Alan spent three weeks preaching about the promise of a Savior. You know, he preached about the circumstances or the, the sovereign circumstances that led to Mary and Joseph's trip to Bethlehem. We saw that uh, the fulfillment of a covenant that God made with David. God told David in 2 Samuel that he would establish his throne forever. And last week, we saw the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, fulfilling that promise made to David. You know, fully man, fully God, Jesus came into this earth as a baby in a manger. And this morning, we'll look directly at the aftermath of what happened after uh, Christ was born and placed in the manger. We'll think about and examine what happened exactly after the King of Kings came into this world. So this morning... In our text, we're going to see three ways that King Jesus is worthy. That's three ways King Jesus is worthy. Please open your Bibles to Matthew 2, uh, 1 through 12. Matthew 2, 1 through 12. Thanks. The text says this. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judah in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and the scribes of the people and asked them where the Messiah would be born. In Bethlehem of Judah, they told him, because this was what was written in the by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then, then Herod, secretly summoning the wise men, and asked them exactly the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me so that I too can go and worship him. After hearing the king, they went on their way, and there it was, the star they had seen at its rising. It led them until, they, until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. Let's pray. Lord, we 
thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for this opportunity that we have to gather each Sunday for another year and hear your word preached. Uh, please keep me from error this morning. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear the truths of your word, Lord. And I pray all this in, in Jesus' name, amen. So as I mentioned, our text uh, is going to deal with the events immediately following the birth of Jesus. Our text, as I said, is going to have three ways that King Jesus is worthy. So the first of those ways uh, that we see is Jesus is wor a king worthy of worship. Jesus is a king worthy of worship. Look back to verses 1 and 2. As we begin to look at our passage, verse 1 is going to introduce us to the primary characters we're going to be looking at this morning. So we have Jesus, King Herod, and the wise men. You know, Jesus probably needs no introduction. We, as a church, we talk about him every week, every, throughout the year. We don't need Advent to talk about Jesus, right? But uh, throughout this Advent season, we have been specifically looking at his birth. And throughout the year, we've been looking at a lot of aspects of his life. You know, Alan has done well to keep pointing us to Christ's kingship being a fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. All right, Jesus, he's in, in the line of David because his father, Joseph, is in the line of David. If you glance over to Matthew chapter 1, uh, the first 17 verses give a genealogy uh, from Abraham to Joseph and then essentially to Jesus. And so in that genealogy, there's two clear markers, you know, being a son of Abraham and also being a son of David. And so uh, Matthew completes this genealogy from Abraham to Joseph, his father, to state that the coming Messiah was clearly to come from the line of David. Matthew wants to make that clear right away. He covers it right away and says, look, point one, while Jesus is the Messiah, he's the son of David, right? And so Jesus, the son of David, the Messiah, is going to be the primary person in our passage this morning. But one of his supporting casts he has here is King Herod. This is Herod the Great. If you know anything about history, he ruled from 40 BC to about 4 BC. You know, he was called Herod the Great because he was a great builder. You know, he, he built the city of Caesarea, he built new walls around Jerusalem, and he built a magnificent temple there in Jerusalem. But he may have been a great builder, but he was a terrible king. He, he was terrible. He was paranoid. He was cruel. He even murdered some members of his own family. You know, and throughout our passage, and, and as we look at our uh, text this morning, we are going to see some of that cruelty come out. Then we have the wise men, or the magi. We'll, I'll call them magi throughout the rest of the sermon. So these magi were magicians. They were astrologers who studied the stars and they interpreted dreams. Uh, we find early instances of them in the book of Exodus when Moses is in front of Pharaoh. They, Pharaoh has his own magi there duplicating the, the things that Moses was doing. And then they, we, they show up again in the book of Daniel. And so they're found, magi are found all over the Roman Empire, but specifically they're associated with, with Babylonia. And so it's very likely the magi here being from the east is signaling that they are from Babylon. And so uh, the, the, the Magi would have had a negative commentation with the Jewish people, right? So they not only were pagan Gentiles, but here they're, they're magicians as well, right? So this would not have sit well with the Jews. They're the last people you would expect for God to invite to Jesus' birthday party, right? And so their invitation, though, is only the beginning of one of the major themes that we see throughout the book of Matthew, and that is that Jesus is rejected by his own people, the Jews, and welcomed as king of kings by the Gentiles. 
And so here in our opening verses, we're introduced to two kings and, and the wise men. We have King Herod, who's the acting king of the Jews at this time. And we have Jesus, who it says was born king of the Jews. And then we have the wise men. Now look to verse two. The wise men come seeking Jesus. It says, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. So how does a group of magi from the east, Babylon presumably, know about Jesus? You know, how, how do they know that this star that's leading them has anything to do with Jesus at all or his birth? You know, if you remember your Old Testament, uh, the Jews had been exiled to Babylon. Uh, so their prophecies of the Messiah, you know, pr- presumably would have been known throughout Babylon and Persia. While they were exiled there, they didn't stop practicing their religion. And so perhaps uh, the Magi were focused on a singular prophecy that Alan preached on in the first week of our Advent series, uh, the prophecy made famous by another Magi, Balaam. In Numbers twenty four seventeen, it says, a star will come out of Jacob, a scepter will rise from Israel. And so because they knew this prophecy, the Magi come to Jerusalem, the star signaling to them that, that the Messiah had been born. Now the star itself uh, is a bit of a mystery. Some believe it was just an actual star. Some believe it was a comet, you know, maybe a planet. You know, sometimes we can see Mars or we can see one of the planets off in the distance. Uh, here they believe it may have been Jupiter or Saturn. Uh, perhaps it was a supernova, just a giant group of stars. We don't really know exactly what the star was. Nobody really knows. There's no eyewitness testimony left. Uh, but we do know that it's just another way that God uses his sovereign control of, over creation to bring about the events of history. Right? He used this star to bring the Magi to fulfill the prophecy uh, and I found in Isaiah, and the Magi probably didn't know this, but they were fulfilling a prophecy found in Isaiah 60 that said, the nations will come to your light. So these Gentiles, the nations will come, and the kings to your bright, the brightness of your dawn. So the Magi, they come to Herod and state their purpose. We've seen the star and have come to worship the king. You know, this could not have sounded well to Herod's ears. You know, that he thought they should have been worshiping him. You know, the Magi are the first sign of the nations, the Gentiles, recognizing Jesus as king. You know, Jesus is to be worshipped not only by the Jews, but by all the nations of the earth. And we, that's signaled here by the wise men coming from the east, the nations, the Gentiles, as most of us are here today. And so it's interesting, they come before the earthly king, Herod, and do not appear to worship him at all or show him the respect that he thought he may have deserved. They have only have interest in worshiping the true king, Jesus. And so they are drawn to Christ just as every true believer should be, right? He is, uh, <clears throat> they should be, th- th- just as every true believer should be. You know, this didn't sit well with Herod. If you think about it from his perspective, he's acting king of the Jews, but he was not a Jew. He was an Edomite. And so he knows that this Jewish child had every right to, to fulfill the throne, right? This, for Herod, is an unacceptable outcome. You know, we will, we're going to see that in our second way uh, that we see Jesus as worthy, and that, that brings us to our second way. He's worthy, he's a king worthy of fear. Jesus is a king worthy of fear. 
And so we think about those who reject Jesus as Messiah and King, they're, they're disturbed by Jesus instead of being drawn to him like the wise men were. Look to verse 3. It says, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. You know, it appears that the Magi, maybe they didn't go straight to, to Herod. Perhaps they started asking around Jerusalem and causing a stir and, and the word got back to Herod. Hey, some guys are here looking for a king. Uh, again, we're going to start to see this theme of the rejection of Jesus by his own people and the acceptance of him by the Gentiles. We'll see that played out by comparing and contrasting the Magi, who were willing, they were attentive, they followed God's call. Look, they, they see the star, they pack up from Babylon, and they head west in search of the king. The religious leaders who knew the scriptures and knew where the Messiah was to be born, they just remained still. They just stayed in Jerusalem. They never attempted to locate the new Messiah. You know, Herod asks, he comes to the religious leaders and said, where is this Christ to be born? And the religious leaders go straight to the scriptures with his answers. Look at verses four through six. So he assembled the chief priests and the scribes of the people and asked them where the Messiah would be born. In Bethlehem of Judah, they told him, because this was what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And so this quote here that's taken from a couple places in the Old Testament, Micah 5.2 and 2 Samuel 5.2. Uh, so they combine, uh, there's a combination of two Old Testament uh, prof prophecies here, and the religious leaders would have known that. Right? In, in other words, their rejection of Jesus, the religious leaders' rejection of Jesus, wasn't based on ignorance. They knew the scriptures. They knew where the Christ was going to be born. And when the Magi appeared asking about the newborn king, they simply just remained passive. They had all the knowledge they needed to seek and find Christ, but instead, they just proved that it's possible to have all the knowledge you want about Christ, but never come to him as Lord and Savior. You know, Jesus would later tell the religious leaders in John 5, he would say, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, and you refuse to come to me to have life. You know, you can know all about Jesus, you can know all about the Bible, but unless you come to him in faith and believe in him as Lord and Savior, you'll never know the benefit of, G of knowing Christ. You know, at this point, Herod, he has all the information he needs, and he, he summons the wise men. Get him in here, verses 7 and 8. Look down to verse 7 and 8. It says, when Herod, then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them to, about the exact time of the star, the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me so that I can go and worship him. You know, Herod wanted to know exactly what time the star had appeared because he was trying to determine the age of his competitor. You know, he, assuming the star showed up at Jesus' birth, he could determine his age based upon when the star came. You know, how old was this new king? Was he a few months old? A few years old? What if the star came 20 years ago? So Herod's trying to gauge the age of his competitor, Jesus, and he tells the Magi, make a careful search. You know, I would like to come and worship him also. But Herod's uh, wanting to come and worship is nothing but deceit and hypocrisy. You know, the Magi come wanting to worship Christ. They, they have worship in their hearts. 
Herod, only murder in his heart. So he fears this new king is going to take his place on the throne. He fears that the Messiah, and he uses the word Messiah because he won't call him king, right? He's the rightful king, will take his rightful place on the throne. So Herod's fear is, his fear here is uh, circumstantial. It's, it's very selfish, the fear that he's feeling. You know, he's used to people fearing him as king, and now these tables have turned. He's feeling this fear himself. You know, different from the type of fear that Herod is feeling, Christians see throughout all of Scripture that we are called to, to fear the Lord, right? But that fear is much different than what Herod is feeling here. When the Bible refers to fear of the Lord, it, it means having a deep respect and reverence and, and awe for God's power and authority, right? Rather than causing someone to be afraid, uh, a proper fear of the Lord lends them to love him, right? Herod's suffering from this worldly fear, but Christians uh, fear the Lord out of respect and awe, you know, two radically different outcomes from the same emotion. <clears throat> Christ is worthy of both kinds of fear, right? He's worldly fear because unbelievers will ultimately be judged by him for the lives that they have led, but also he's worthy of the fear of Christians who are showing their deep respect and reverence and awe for the one who saved them. So that brings us to our, our third way that we see Jesus as worthy. Jesus is worthy because he is a king worthy of praise. He is a king worthy of praise. Look to verses 9 and 10 of the text. After they, had, after they had heard the king, they went on their way. The star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. You know, the Magi have their answer that they were seeking from Herod and continue on their journey. They're led, they were led to Jerusalem by the rising of the star, but here... By God's sovereign power, the star is now going to pinpoint exactly where they need to go, exactly where Jesus is. The star pinpoints the king's exact location. It comes to rest over a house about five or six miles south of Jerusalem in Bethlehem. And so when they see the star, the magi, they are overjoyed, right? This, this should be uh, an emotion that all Christians have when they seek and find Christ, right? For, for Christians... Peter describes this type of joy we should have in 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9 when he says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So true worship of Christ always, uh, always ends or results in us rejoicing in him. We have this joy in Christ. And you know, we worship Christ because of what he has done for us, right? It's, as Peter said, he provided a way for salvation. You know, he was uh, born of the Virgin Mary, as Alan talked about last week, and he came to this earth fully man and fully God. You know, Jesus goes on from this point to live a sinless and perfect life, and he went to the cross dying for our sins, uh, his perfect life gave him the right to be the sacrifice that God required from all of us. You know, a sacrifice you and I could never make, uh, a price that we could never pay, right? But hanging there on the cross, God placed your sins on him 
and after his death and resurrection. He was on earth for 40 days before he ascended to the right hand of the Father, where he's currently reigning over all creation. And so this, the gospel, you know, should overwhelm us with joy, right? Every Christian should just be overwhelmed for their life in Christ, regardless of our earthly circumstances. You know, those who seek and find Christ uh, should be overwhelmed with joy. And that's certainly what happened with the wise men, right? Look to verse 11. Entering, a ho- entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So Matthew's repeated use of the word child here, and back in verse 9, uh, I think gives us a clue that some time had passed and Jesus was no longer the baby in the manger that Alan looked at last week. We don't know the exact time frame of when the Magi came to Bethlehem, but I think the evidence points to it not being in the same time frame of when the angels and the shepherds came to the manger. If we look at both passages, Luke 2 and Matthew 2, we don't really see any overlap at all. No, no commonalities. Uh, another reason why I think there are two separate times is that we think about the star that appeared at Jesus' birth. Right? The Magi had to travel. They saw the star. They would have had to travel from Babylon to Jerusalem where they saw King Herod. You know, that's about a 720-mile journey from Babylon to um, Jerusalem. The book of Ezra gives us some insight as to how long that journey might have taken. In Ezra 7, if you remember, the Israelites had been exiled to Babylon, and now they're released. They're able to go back. Ezra 7 says that the Israelites were returning from Babylon captivity, and the journey took them from the first day of the first month to the first day of the fifth month. So four month, a four-month journey for all the Israelites. Obviously, they would have had a much larger group of people. They would have had uh, children and elderly with them presumably slowing them down a little bit, but not slowing them down that much. Um, and so we can, we can say that the wise men's journey probably took them a, a couple of months. Uh, even more, another factor is Herod's response after he realizes the wise men are not going to come back. So later on in our, our passage, or later on in the chapter, if you look down to verse 16, Herod realizes that they're not coming back, and, he, and he said the, verse 16 says this, Then Herod, when he realized that he had been outwitted by the wise men, flew into a rage. He gave orders to massacre all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and younger in keeping with the time that he had learned from the wise men. Now, certainly Herod would have been sure to include this newborn king of the Jews into that age range. And so presumably he went a little higher than he needed to going to uh, boys uh, that were two years and older. But I think the point here is that He didn't have all the newborns killed. He had all the children, the toddlers, the toddlers killed, presumably to include the king of kings in that. And so I think based on this information, I think it's safe to say Jesus was probably somewhere from four to nine months old when the wise men came. So not uh, at the manger like most of our modern nativity scenes uh, portray. I know it makes them look nicer, but I don't think that they were there at the manger uh, you know, so the logistics of making that happen uh, from their traveling and all the evidence, I think, points to Jesus being about uh, Peter Bang's age, maybe, when, uh, when, when the wise men came. And when they came, you know, they worship and they praise him, right? They, they bring gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And these gifts, they're gifts fit for a king, right? The, 
Uh, these are very expensive gifts. Uh, so we don't know that the social status of the Magi, right? We don't know who they were really, but we do know that they had expensive gifts like gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And if you couple that with the fact that they were given an audience with the king, King Herod, uh, we can probably say that they had a higher standing in society, right? They, they, they seem to be very wealthy, and here they are, you know, wealthy pagan magicians coming to worship the king of kings, Jesus Christ. Many interpreters have found symbolic meaning in, in the gifts that were presented to him. In his book, Against Heresies in the Second Century, the Second Century Church Father Irenaeus uh, says that the gifts signified the mystery of the incarnation. The incarnation being, you know, God being made flesh, coming into this world, becoming a man. He says, gold is a symbol of royalty, representing his kingship. Frankincense uh, is used in worship, so pointing to his divinity. And myrrh, when it was used, uh, was used a lot of times in embalming, represented his humanity, particularly his passion and his death. And so if we look, you know, the old Christmas carol, We Three Kings, I think, puts it, sums it up very well when it says, uh, it describes Jesus as king and God and sacrifice. So it's a very good summary from that old hymn. And so the Magi, they're preparing to leave at the end of our, at verse 12, uh, and they come, they leave the same way that they come, by supernatural direction, right? It says, verse 12 says, and being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. And so we've already seen that the wise men, you know, they've been obedient to what they've been told to do. You know, they, the star, they see the star rise, they pack up from, from Babylon, they head west, uh, they, they, they come to the king, they ask around Jerusalem, where is this king? They get the information they need, the star leads them to Bethlehem, and now, in this dream, they are led away um, from another route so they don't go back to Herod. So we see them throughout this passage being obedient. And so I think we think about the wise men and we think about this passage and, and thinking about Advent. You know, what can we learn from the wise men? What is it, uh, how can we apply what we've learned about them this morning and, and, and their lives and, and their journey to our lives today, right? So I think... Uh, if we think about it, we'll leave you with three things that we learned from the wise men or three points of application that we have learned here uh, from the wise men this morning. First, like the wise men, we should be drawn to the light. Right? Jesus, the light of the world, is the light of the world, and we should be drawn to him. You know, when Christ came into the world, uh, the wise men were immediately drawn to him. They see the star, they come they come to the light. And people since then have been drawn to Christ ever since. Right? People for thousands of years have been drawn away from the world, you know, away from the lusts of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, as the Apostle John puts it, and have been drawn to the light of the world. Uh, being drawn to Christ is not like a, a one-time event that happens in our life. Right? We're, we're not drawn to Christ and then we're just, we're here, we have arrived. Uh, the author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 12.1, let us run with endurance the race that lies before us and keep our eyes on Jesus, the, pi the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Keep our eyes on Jesus. 
right? Christians are called to constantly examine their lives to see where is the world pulling us away from Christ? How is the world influencing us to live a life that looks like the world and that doesn't look like Christ? You know, Paul tells the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, that he says, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. You know, examine yourselves. Where have we compromised with the world? What areas of our life look more like the world than, than like Jesus Christ? You know, being drawn to the light is constantly turning back to him, right? Being drawn to the light is repenting of our sins daily, hourly, perhaps every minute of the day if we need to, right? Being drawn to Christ is a lifelong journey. It's the lifelong journey of sanctification, being drawn to him. It's our daily walk with, with Christ. And so two, second thing. The second thing we can learn from the wise men, I think, is obedience to this drawing, right? We, we talked about uh, being drawn to the light and being drawn to Christ. Well, when God calls, we should be obedient to that call, right? Looking back to the wise men, you know, they don't hesitate. Uh, the star appears, they pack up and head west, right? Being from the east, they, they head out uh, and I think about, you know, how often have we been submiss- uh, fully submissive to the Lord's leading? You know, if you're like me, most of the time it, it, there's some resistance when the Lord is leading me somewhere. You know, uh, it usually involves me doing what I want to do and not necessarily what the Lord has put in front of me, right? The wise men, they don't have this mentality. They were obedient to the Lord immediately. They go when they're called to go. You know, as Christians, we're called to be obedient to the, to the commands in Scripture. I mean, it's, it's found throughout uh, the entire book of the Bible, entire Bible. And Jesus specifically says in John 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You know, if you love God, you will keep his commandments. Right? If we're obedient to his word, to the words found in our Bible, that we need to be obedient to the words found in our Bible. The, the Puritan John Owen, he once wrote, If the word of God does not dwell with power in us, it will not pass with power from us, right? And so it's through this knowledge of and obedience to God's word that we can keep his commandments, you know, and the power of his word will naturally flow from us. These two uh, first application points, they tie closely with our third and final point this morning. And the final thing that we can learn from the wise men this morning is that that we all have a gift to bring to Christ. We all have something that we can offer him, and that gift is our life. They bring gold, frankincense, and myrrh, but Christians today should present ourselves to Christ as a living sacrifice. Paul tells that to the Roman believers in Romans 12, 1 and 2. He says, Brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is good, pleasing, and perfect, and the perfect will of God. You know, we should present ourselves to Christ as a living sacrifice, Paul says. We're called to live a life worthy of the Lord, and this certainly encompasses our first two application points, uh, that we, we should be drawn to the light, we should be drawn to Christ, and we should be obedient to his word, but it's much more than that. Uh, it's, it's the process, this process of sanctification that God uses us to mold us to become more like his son, Jesus Christ. You know, we must 
die to ourselves. We must put to death ourselves every day and take up our cross and follow Christ. You know, presenting ourselves to the Lord day by day uh, as a living sacrifice uh, is a lifelong journey. Like I said in our previous application points, this isn't something we just arrive at and we're there. This takes steps, sacrifice that we must do day by day. So remember what Paul said, that we, we just read it. He said, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. This is true worship. You know, living a life that is holy and pleasing to God is true worship. You know, and our Lord Jesus Christ is the, the only one who's worthy of that worship, as we talked about. And, you know, he's the only one who's worthy of worship, our fear, and our praise. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that um, we can gather and just the end of the year this year, we can look forward to another year and we can look back on the year that we've had, Lord. We just pray that you would uh, just go before us into this new year. Uh, Be with all of us as we uh, seek to honor you and glorify you with our lives. I pray that uh, this word here this morning uh, would prick our hearts and we would would, uh, be edified and we would know you better, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.